The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, October 29th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Earlier this month, Melinda Gates announced a $1 billion grant toward expanding women's power and influence in the United States. She wrote, in time, of her goal to see more women in the position to make decisions, control resources, and shape policies and perspectives. In this video, she got into a little more detail. First, we need to dismantle the barriers that prevent women from advancing professionally. Things like stereotypes about women and girls in the media and sexual harassment in workplaces. Second, we need to expand pathways to enter and fast-track advancement for women into positions of leadership in the sectors with the biggest impact on our society, including entrepreneurship, politics, and technology. Third, we need to amplify external pressure on institutions that can change the status quo, helping people raise their voices and demand equality. Now, one institution that has tried to change its status quo is Congress, with its rule disallowing relationships between congressional members and their subordinates. I think we could all get on board with that. Even Melinda Gates, who is in a position to give a grant to advance such work as addressing inherent power imbalances and workplace relationships. Wait, why again? Here, she talks about that magic moment back in 1987. So it turned out his mom knew somebody who was on the board at Microsoft. Um, it was on the board, sorry, at Duke. And so I guess he'd been asking for kind of some information about me. He knew I had worked at Duke. Mm -hmm. I had gone to Duke and then came to work at Microsoft. So anyway, we were working on a Saturday. I worked in a different building, but I guess we'd parked somewhere near each other. And I was coming out of the building, and so was he out of his building. And he struck up a conversation, and we started talking. And then it, this was on a Saturday, and he said, he finally kind of got around. And he said, well, would you, would you go out with me, you know, two weeks from Friday night. And I'm like, two weeks from Friday night? Who knows their calendar that far out? Like, I, you know, I'm like Okay, so that's a little bit of light stalking via the Duke connection by the mom. But who wouldn't be enthralled by this charismatic devil? Here's a clip of Bill Gates in 1987. 1987 is a, an exciting year for graphics interface. The increased popularity of, of the interface has meant that the sales of the Macintosh have been accelerating, as well as all the, the great software that, that sold on Macintosh. In 1987, Bill Gates was the chairman and CEO of a company, Microsoft, then with $345 million in sales that had almost 2,000 employees. One of those, a mid-level employee, was Melinda. So, is Melinda Gates now a hypocrite? No, that is not how relationships work. Are we all hypocrites today? No, times have changed. Is Congress writing impossible to enforce rules for itself? I don't know. They do seem an improvement on the easy to enforce total lack of rules that came before, as did a lack of decorum. I think what we're seeing with the example of Katie Hill is an enforcement of decorum. And that's not always easy. That's not always agreed upon. A consequence of a rigid system, which is built to be rigid, which is built without nuance, and which is built without exceptions in mind. Billionaire philanthropist Melinda Gates is someone who benefited from a different set of rules, but who we don't see are the very many non-beneficiaries of those rules. There were victims, and there are still victims. I just don't know that Katie Hill neatly falls into that category. On the show today, I will expand upon and modify my remarks 
The Society for the Defense and Preservation of Katie Hill, the minutes of their meetings are actually right there within Katie Hill's Twitter feed. But first, it is part two of my interview with the former ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, yesterday, Syria, today, the world. Wait, that is a quote of Vladimir Putin. So yesterday, we heard from former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, former Obama Security Council member for human rights, former Pulitzer Prize winning author, Samantha Power. Yes, just one person. In this interview, I start by asking her about her work in the study of preventing atrocities. And I wondered if she or others in academics or the government went back, went back past the point of when the atrocity occurred back into the future and tried to isolate points and figure out which kinds of states might become states where atrocities occur. And what can we do to intervene before? Yeah, I mean, I'm cautious about use of the word intervene because I feel like nobody even knows what it means anymore. I think you're meaning something about military intervention, which, you know, post-Trump and... Well, I mean, all the the, tools, all the toolbox you talk about. Like, like we look at Serbia and Bosnia and Croatia and Trudgman and Milosevic were at each other. And is there a tell? Is there a point where a study would say, okay, once things go bad from this point, more likely than not, you're going to get these sort of mass graves. I don't know if there is. I don't know if anyone studied it. Oh, no, 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 definitely. There's a huge... um, There's a substantial academic literature, I think, that in social science that looks at the set of factors um, that tend to predate Mm -hmm. crises that give rise to mass atrocities or genocide. That exists. A couple things. I mean, first, I give examples in the book, again, of looking at the circumstances in the country of Sudan and recognizing that ahead of time, there's a referendum that's going to happen you know, just it's to, to reason in the referendum, the people of South Sudan who've been genocided by the government are going to vote shockingly to leave Sudan. And knowing that, we know that the Sudanese government was going to try to stop that. That's an atro- We're in an atrocity prevention moment, yeah. even though it hasn't come to that. Like there's not even a ballot box that's been created or passed around. So we're we're you know a year and a half out even from what the date of that referendum. And so that's an example of looking ahead at. Some of those factors, for example, a history of mass atrocity can be a preview of, of future mass atrocity. Scarce resources, climate change has been a major factor in sort of shrinking the pie. And then you see more tension. And, you know, as we we see even in Western democracies, a temptation to kind of blame the other, how, whether that's defined religiously, politically, ethnically, and and a tendency on the part of politicians to demagogue on the basis of the other. But then amid all that as, as sort of uh, backdrops or steady state conditions, you tend to have some event that is a trigger. Mm-hmm. And so in South Sudan, you had all of what I've just described, but then you had the knowledge that there was a trigger. A coup can be a trigger, for right. example. So some things you can't predict, but occasionally in an example like I've offered, you can predict. And so you know, in that instance, as I tell in the book, is the book is not only a story of Syria – and Libya, by any means, it's a very personal story, an immigrant story, and all the rest. But it's also a story Central of African Republic of examples where of where we're doing all of this, and it doesn't make the headlines, and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives are saved. And indeed, it not only does it not make the headlines, it doesn't deal with the underlying problems that give rise to a potential mass atrocity crisis in the first place. So it right. doesn't solve the problem. To be clear. 
But as a policymaker, your choice is, do you try to save lives and then at the same time try to put in place the elements of a long game that's aimed at dealing with the underlying factors mm-hmm. that would give rise to atrocity in the first place. So South Sudan's an example of that, Central African Republic, Ivory Coast. There are other, I mean, because of the crisis of confidence, I think now about U.S. leadership in the world, you know, I also spend a lot of time talking about the response to the Ebola epidemic, which is not a mass atrocity, but ultimately was a circumstance in which ahead of time, we knew from the epidemiologists that 1.4 million people were going to get infected with Ebola. At that time, 70 to 80 percent of those infected were dying. So that could have been, you know, close to a million people uh, killed by this, uh, you know, kind of ravaging, horrible uh, disease. And in, in the face of that, instead of bucking and bowing to the politics in this country, which were terrible on Ebola, President Obama sent U.S. troops and health workers into the eye of the epidemic, empowering me, Secretary Kerry, and others to mobilize a global coalition to get Cuban doctors to deploy and Malaysian the Malaysian government to, to send rubber gloves and the mm-hmm. Japanese government to build hazmat suits that were less hot in the equatorial sun and the Chinese government, which wants to be a major player on the global stage for the first time, being involved in a central way in a big humanitarian response. And and I think those examples are also really worth bearing in mind because the question of how stability is going to be achieved or preserved by the world as a whole and what role the United States has to play in that conversation is very much uh, up for grabs right now in a way it hasn't been in our, in our lifetimes. Do you think the word genocide has been overused by activists and is there a cost to that? I think it's been overused. I think groups who experience grave injustice of whatever kind, I mean, you know, police violence, mass incarceration. I think now you're seeing even in the climate change movement, the idea that that corporations or governments are, are sort of complicit in genocide. I think when it's when it's that horrible, as the things I've just described, you want the most horrible word mm-hmm. that that you can deploy in order to sort of generate as much attention as you can in order to deal with the underlying terribleness. And so I completely understand it. But I think what ends up happening is the, the, over time, the word loses a bit of currency, I suppose, if it does get overused, but but I care less about that. It's more that we have enough that is impeding our path to dealing with climate change. We want an expeditious set of coalitions and initiatives to be put in place that go well beyond even what the Obama administration put in place. To me, the the way station of getting that label puts us in, a, in an argument that is not actually helping us get to our destination. So if, if I'm going to convince, try to convince Republicans to return to science and to believe what's in front of them, calling what corporations are doing, what they're doing, you know, complicit in genocide isn't helping me. And there are plenty of people who are already plenty motivated. Even some of them might look askance and say, oh, well, I'm all for dealing with climate change, but I think that terminology, is that right? And, yeah. and so I'm going to spend some time- My grandfather died in the Holocaust. Yeah, this is the same I'm going to spend some time yeah. looking into that. Well, that right. you know, And so in, I, this isn't just a point about genocide. I think it's about- labels generally, which can mean different things to different people. In the case of genocide, there actually is a legal definition, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty high bar or a different bar than some of the things that I've described. So I think it can tend to be diversionary and can detract. I've I heard it used, for example, recently even 
in terms of what Turkish President Erdogan is doing within Turkey to political opposition. And what I said to the person who'd, who'd used the term, as I said, I said, you know, you then for an American audience, especially that may not be familiar with, with all the terrible things that Erdogan is doing to his people, they, they end up in their head thinking, well, wait, it, it certainly wasn't like what Hitler did. And so therefore, yeah. if it's not like what Hitler did, maybe it isn't so bad. And it's like, no, no, surely that's not our standard for what horrific state behavior is. And so you, I, I just think it's it, it can be distracting. And we have courts that grew up, unfortunately, they're not at the height of their sort of reach and and legitimacy right now, the International Criminal Court, but it was good in the 90s and in through the first decade of the 20, 21st century to see institutions in place who would actually adjudicate the question of, of you know, where does ethnic cleansing end and genocide begin and, and, and to, you know, further refine in the public imagination, um, you know, what belonged in that category. It means sort of almost like third-degree murder, second-degree murder, first-degree murder, or even like what the Supreme Court has done on free speech and whether you can shout fire in a crowded theater. I mean, you needed courts to have cases come before it to figure out where those lines were. But I don't think it helps anybody in their in – or in general, I should say. It, it, I think it, it's, it doesn't necessarily give you the boon that you seek in, right. in seizing the label. You love baseball. Yes. Finally, you- something that isn't – about my last book. <laughs> so it seems to me that at different times or maybe currently, you've been a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Boston Red Sox, the Washington Nationals. Am I missing anyone? No. Do you think that being a fan of so many teams comports with your diplomatic resolve or background? I think it's pathetic. I don't, th- <laughs> I don't think with a straight face I can defend it, but I will try. Uh-huh. I grew up a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. I moved to Pittsburgh in 1979, just before the playoffs started, just before the Pirates made their run, won the World Series. Baseball was my way of fitting in. I ran around the neighborhood with a big wad of Big League Chew in my cheek, and I collected baseball cards and baseball stickers. Do you remember those? I don't think they have those anymore. And I ate Topps pink gum and ruined my teeth at an early age. And it was all Pirates all the time. I went to high school in Atlanta, Georgia, did not, was not so fickle that I, you know, jumped on the Braves bandwagon yeah. or anything like that. Of course, that. this was the late 80s. This was, this was 70s into 80s. So they into sucked 90s. anyway. The Braves were terrible. Well, so. The, okay. So the, Bra- the Braves were terrible, but, yes. I, but I really was, I mean, there was no uh, close call. And indeed, as you know, the Braves and the Pirates would square off in the sure. playoffs back when P- Pittsburgh could compete with the bigger market teams. And so I stayed a Pirates fan. Then I went to Bosnia. I moved to Boston, um, went to law school there, and ended up living in a place that was – I worked uh, at Harvard, and in order to get home, I had to drive on Stora Drive right by Fenway Park every night. I became friends with Doris Kearns Goodwin, the sort of uh, – another person who changed her loyalties – or not changed her loyalties, supplemented her yes. loyalties. Well, it's easy when the Dodgers no longer exist in Brooklyn. That's true, yeah. but you could – you know. Some people follow them mm-hmm. west, but but what I said at the time because I felt incredibly guilty at the time, not least because it was like selling out a small market team for you know a team with with a, a huge payroll. And uh, but what I said was, I have an American League slot vacant okay. in my heart. So I had a National League. There was nobody who was going to compete with the with the Pirates, and then I had this. So then occasionally the, through interleague play, the Red Sox and the and the Pirates would play, and. You know, I, it depended on who was where in the standings in terms of, but I, I mean, I, I concede 
that this is uh, borderline unethical. However, what I will defend now um, is I have a 10-year-old son and a 7-year-old daughter. My 10-year-old son feels about baseball a greater intensity of conviction and dedication than even me at my most obsessive. And I'm somebody who listened to Red Sox-Yankee games on a Thuraya satellite phone in Darfur during the genocide, regular season games, and who went to spring training every year. And I'm a big fan. I have nothing on my son who can actually tell you the score of every regular season Washington Nationals game, not even because he has a great memory, but he has just... Well, he must have a great memory, but he 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 has tracked it that carefully. And so now I'm in a situation where, as I think most parents can identify with, I care much more about his happiness than my own, and his happiness turns linearly on the fate of the Washington Nationals. And so that I think is more defensible than 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 sort of hedging my bets between the two leagues. But do you think that it that it in any way relates to your diplomatic outlook no, on the world? No, no, it no, has to do no. with like raw. Um, conviction as it, but evolving conviction. But I, 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 I don't. When when I meet people who who are similarly situated and are you know and they're like, oh, I like the Cubs and the White Sox. I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, yeah. or <laughs> or you know, I'm I live in Connecticut, so I you know I'm happy. I mean, most years the Yankees or the Red Sox will make will make the play. Uh, what? It is insane. <laughs> so your husband is Cass Sunstein, who's been on this show as I told you five times because he's written thirty eight books or something More, in the five yeah. years that I've hosted the show. You the you write. Excellent books. Your first book took a while to publish, but I think to write uh, in interviews, I've heard about how you've labored over this one. Does the fact that he's so prolific drive you crazy? The fact that you're living with this person who's churning out book after book after book as you're working on one? Pretty much. I mean, other things <laughs> drive me more crazy. So, Like his handwriting. <laughs> you know, like, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and his slovenliness uh, mm-hmm. more generally. Uh, all of the order in Cass's life is in his brain and in his writing uh, and teaching, and the rest of the the disorder is all externalized, unfortunately, in our home. But I think, can I say something amazing about him, is that he, when no matter what I write, for what publication, or no matter what draft I was on of this book, and I'm, I'm a person who just writes draft after draft and edits and mm-hmm, edits and mm-hmm. edits and edits, the same thing that makes him sort of scarily prolific and and the same thing that has him filling every crevice of the day with productivity makes him the most agile, speedy reader and editor. And so actually the thing that could drive me crazy in that I'm shamed by the fact that he's done seven books in the time it took me to do one, I benefit from that, you know, because he just he's he's just capable. He's so ambidextrous kind of um, in his ability to do multiple things at once and just be very thorough and very speedy at once. I've never met anyone like him. The Education of an Idealist, a memoir by Samantha Power. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. Dan Savage on his Savage Love podcast talked a little about Katie Hill today. I wanted to play you what I thought was an interesting part of that discussion. The antonym for subordinate isn't dominordinate either. It's superior. But you know what? You can't fuck up, actually. You can't fuck your superior because that means they're fucking a subordinate, you, and that would be inappropriate. So don't fuck up or down. Fuck only laterally. Or, you know, don't fuck people who work for you or people you work for. 
or people you work with, because you don't want to be fucking someone with less power than you, someone who may feel coerced or pressured. Just like punching down in comedy, power is relative and there are power differentials that have nothing to do with our workplaces. And forbidding sex or dating in the workplace, it could have the opposite of the intended effect. Because when it comes to sex, forbidding something doesn't always make people not want to do it. Dan goes on to say, as a general rule, members of Congress coupling with subordinates, not a great thing, but we shouldn't act shocked when it happens. That's true. For many a walk of life, a flat-out ban on any subordinate having a relationship with anyone in a supervisory position would be unfeasible. But for Congress, that is the ban they wanted to put in place for a few reasons. One would be to make their workplace relatively free of scandal, very important for Congress. And two, there are the signaling aspects of having such a rule. The military has such a rule. One can enforce strict codes when the participants in a workplace have few rights. Many colleges have such a code because they want to, again, signal to the world that they are foursquare against that sort of coupling. A university is an ideologically driven workplace. It may be one of the few workplaces in the world that exists to be ideological, even when the ideas aren't logical. The question this raises is, should every workplace have this rule? There is a move to say when relationships are based on power imbalances, they are inherently coercive. I believe that is overbroad. That seems to be a bit of rhetoric that borrows from the world of theory that fails when applied in the world of the actual world. As Dan Savage says, attraction exists independent from the corporate org chart. People have relationships with subordinates all the time. Sometimes they marry subordinates, and when they do, it's a cute story about how they met. Not a horrible story of the perils of power imbalance. I agree with Dan. It's not necessarily unethical in many circumstances for a subordinate and a superior to couple. But if Katie Hill agrees with that premise, she is doing nothing to fight for that cause. I understand. I really do. What she's doing is weighing less bad options. And the stance she has decided to take is one of resignation coupled with indignation. Right now, Katie Hill's Twitter feed is filled with Katie Hill or whoever controls her feed linking to sympathetic articles and interviews. So here is some of what Katie Hill wants her Twitter followers to know. USA Today, former rep Katie Hill's defenders say it wasn't the alleged affairs that brought her down. It was revenge porn. Well, I want to be clear here. One of the affairs was alleged, one was confirmed, and I think technically neither were affairs. I mean, if all parties are on board, not an affair. Katie Hill also wants you to know that Time Magazine wrote an essay described as, Katie Hill is the first millennial lawmaker to resign because of nudes. She won't be the last. Couple of things here. She didn't resign because of nudes. She resigned because the nudes revealed a relationship she herself called inappropriate and a lapse in judgment with a campaign staffer. Again, not against the code of conduct of Congress, but one, that relationship with the campaign staffer. She did originally dismiss it as a smear, then she admitted to it, then she resigned over it. And by the way, her resignation also pulls the plug on a congressional inquiry that might have cleared her, or might not have. Now, the other part of this description, Katie Hill is the first millennial lawmaker to resign because of nudes, is the word millennial. She is not the first lawmaker to leave office 
because of nudes. Republican Joe Barton of Texas, 69 years old at the time, was subject to nude pictures of himself being circulated on Twitter in an attempt to shame him. He quickly announced he would not seek re-election. With that in mind, when Anna North in Vox writes, quote, media outlets didn't promote scrutiny of Al Franken's body or of his sex life outside of misconduct allegations. Other male members of Congress who resigned after allegations like sexual misconduct, such as Blake Farenthold or Representative John Conyers, also have not seen their bodies plastered across websites. When she writes that, she ignores the fact that that's exactly what happened to Joe Barton. His nude photos with the genitals obscured ran in the Daily Mail. And yet she goes on to assert everything about Hill's story from the way it became public to the way the Daily Mail and other websites encourage readers to examine her naked body is inextricably tied to the fact that Hill is a woman. Except Joe Barton got the same exact treatment as a man. Vox then quotes Brianna Wu, a candidate for Congress in Massachusetts and an advocate for privacy legislation, as saying, quote, you cannot even imagine this happening with a male congressman, except you can, because it did to Joe Barton of Texas. To allege sexism, it helps to consider what is the independent variable and what's the control. If you change the gender of the person in the middle of the scandal, does the scandal change? Well, we have an example of a man at the center of a scandal where the scandal doesn't really change. That would suggest that something other than gender is the total cause of the scandal. Or he could just ignore the complicating counterexample, which makes it easier to follow assertions like this one on Katie Hill's Twitter feed. Quote, there's going to be a generation of politicians where there are thousands of images around. We're going to have to decide as a society if we're going to let that be a permanent source of blackmail. Or Charlotte Clymer, who writes, Katie Hill wasn't held accountable. She was thrown on a pyre for the benefit of men. Men! Men did this! The Speaker of the House of Representatives, a man! Perhaps you've heard of Nancy Pelosi. Katie Hill herself, a man! The female staffer who Katie Hill had the relationship with, a man! The people who wrote the Congressional Code of Ethics disallowing relationships between members of Congress and staffers. You remember when Maisie Hirono and Jackie Spears and Kirsten Gillibrand all led that charge? Men, men, men! And not just men, straight white men. Katie Hill linked to a thread by Fane Greenwood. Thread included this, quote, Unfortunately, a world where everyone has bad internet photos will still be a world where straight white men's bad internet photos hurt them less. We're seeing that go down now. We need strategy. We just can't wait this out. Look, I am not so naive as to think that gender didn't play a role in this. Or... That Hill's sexuality didn't play a role. Of course it did. Of course there are people who are against that or pretend to be against that for political gain. I also think that Katie Hill may very well be the victim of revenge porn. I say pursue a case against the ex-husband if it was indeed him who leaked the photos. But you know, sometimes the leakers break the law and then the public has knowledge and it's up to the public to do something with that knowledge. Edward Snowden broke the law. Barack Obama said he appreciated the discussion of some of the revelations. Someone close to Donald Sterling likely broke the law, leaking tapes that were made without Sterling's consent, California being a two-party consent state for taping. 
But knowing what we know about Donald Sterling, do we then say, well, I guess it's okay that he keeps owning the Clippers as a racist because of uh, some fruit of the poisonous tree dictum? Katie Hill, out of probably, to be humane about this, you know, ego saving, an understandable exercise in salvaging what you can of your ego in a troubling time, she has grasped onto a defiance over the cause that she has come to see herself as being the champion of. In her video to her now former constituents, she says, As I have before, I will stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. Because there is one thing that I know for sure. I will not allow my experience to scare off other young women or girls from running for office. By resigning. That is how you ensure that. I want to be clear. You know... If no one were coming to Katie Hill's defense, if we were living in a country of cold puritanism that didn't see any gray areas, I would be saying something like, you know what? Katie Hill shouldn't necessarily have the death sentence here politically. There are defenses to what Katie Hill did. One is that the congressional code may be overly broad up to and including a consensual affair with a subordinate. Yeah, but you know, in this case, it wasn't even a subordinate who raised her hand and said, I've been wronged. And obviously, Katie Hill's attackers, obviously, they are operating in bad faith. It does suck that they've won. Here's another argument. Katie Hill needs to step down so as not to be a distraction with the work of impeachment. And in a sane world, there would be no Trump. There would be no desperate need to avoid distracting from the important work of congressional oversight. But my God, the horrible arguments in defense of Hill, the self-serving martyrdom The lesson learned is being 100% Katie Hill victim, 0% Katie Hill author of her own fate. I don't know, maybe I'm just overreacting to the media waters in which I swim. But at the very least, can we admit that Katie Hill might have been wronged, but also be wrong? And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader. Like Samantha Power, there are 27 Major League Baseball teams he does not root for. He's pretty pure because the other three he doesn't care about either. Christina DeJosa also produces The Gist. The Dolce & Gabbana and DeJosa Foundation provides grants empowering the discount rack at Century 21. The Gist. You know, she shouldn't think of it as a scandal. She th- should think of it as a martyr starter kit. Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.